So there's always this dichotomy of interest. One side wants one thing, one side wants another thing. You have to think about that in the context of owning real estate as well, because your lender wants one thing, your attorney wants one thing, your CPA wants another thing, your tenant wants one thing, and they don't always align. So you have to play this game the way that it was built to be played. You have to play according to the rules. If you want to get into the multifamily space and you want to grow your pro- your portfolio, I hate to tell you this, you can't put 5 or 10% down. You got to put down money. And that money is not something you get to choose. Banks back into how much money you're going to put down based on that first source repayment, the cash flow. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, relax your mind, and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I feel like whenever uh, whenever we record one of these, I should probably lead in with, like, you know how the rappers do? Like, one of them goes, uh, or something. I should have some kind of catchphrase. I know Rogan says, hello, friends, but uh, I can't just directly rip off Rogan. Anyway, this week I had something interesting happen, which led to this particular episode. This is going to be one of those free game episodes where I drop some knowledge that I think will be helpful to people, particularly those in the real estate game. But even somebody who's going to buy a house, I think some of this is good to know. But before I do that, let me explain what happened and why this world we live in right now is upside down. For a number of reasons, not not the least of which is the economy, but there's this rise. And TikTok did this during the pandemic. These influencers just gained tremendous momentum because everybody was inside on their phones. They were checking you know, social media at a different level. And some of these influencers just rose up through the ranks. And the ones that grew the most seemed to be the ones who were pumping out sensational bullshit. Hey, man, I can teach you how to make this or, I, you know, I've got this much money and oh, look at me in front of the Lambos and I sell a course on this and on that. I'm not going to name drop the D-bag that was the impetus for this because I'm not going to give him that free clout because I have a feeling that's exactly what this guy does. Like he says sensational stuff just to build clout wars and I'm not going to fall into the name calling or any of that drama bullshit. But what I am going to do is I'm going to clear some stuff up. And what he did do is he provided a good catalyst for this conversation that I think will actually help people because I think there is some ambiguity. And the reason why he's able to say such stupid shit is because people don't understand this. So this particular guy said that he created a limited liability company for his holding company to hold his real estate. So the name on title to the piece of real estate was this LLC. Let's just say LLC one. He then said that he created a management company, an LLC2, and everybody who contracted to live in the property owned by LLC1 wrote up a contract with LLC2, 
and that if anybody ever sued him, they wouldn't be able to get to the assets of LLC 1 because they would have a contract with LLC 2. That is completely wrong. And he tried to mischaracterize and rephrase and deflect. He tried coming back saying, well, people will sue me in small claims court and they'll sue the wrong entity. Bruh, that is so wrong. Fundamentally wrong. Number one, if you're, if you're somebody who's suing somebody, you always name the property owner for any injury or anything that may have occurred as it relates to that property. They're concerned. They're they're considered to be the quote deeper pockets. You always go after the property owner. The person who owns the real estate is liable. Now I'm generalizing a lot because we don't know what the circumstances of any kind of litigation are. But that's always rule number one. You name the person where the injury happened who owned it, right? Rule number two: just because they sue your property management company doesn't mean they can't win that lawsuit, even in small claims court. Because guess what? That person is a fiduciary for you. They are renting out your property. LLC 2 is renting out the property owned by LLC 1. There's vicarious liability. There's all sorts of different types of liability that relate back to that property owner. So you can't just, oh, I'm going to dismiss this in small claims court because you sued the wrong entity. There's a fundamental disconnect by this dude in how the legal system works. And he compounded it by making stupid, stupid ass comments about, oh, you're just a risk-adverse attorney who doesn't own any real estate, brah. You're talking to the wrong guy, man. Like, I own a lot of real estate, and I know this. I know this better than probably most people in the country do because I live it. I live it in a way that's a multi-billion dollar just looking at other people's transactions every single year. But I can tell you this. That confusion is not unique to him. I'll, I'll fault him this. He doesn't understand what a lot of people don't understand. Here's, here's the big the big take-home message that we all need to understand if we're going to get into the real estate game. You go to a lawyer for advice, a real estate attorney. That person isn't thinking about getting you financing. They're thinking about insulating you from risk. You go to a tax attorney, a CPA for advice. That person generally isn't thinking about insulating you from risk. They're thinking about the best tax structure for you to take advantage of that property ownership and get the maximized returns for your dollar. You go to see you know, somebody else about property management. They're thinking about how to best property manage your, your property, insulate you from that risk while maintaining that value proposition of the service for the property. Every single person in this chain has a niche level of expertise and they typically don't think about the big picture. Well, Chris, how does this impact me? What the hell are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. Let's say you're like this guy and you're trying to insulate yourself from risk. A very common structure for people who want to get in the rental properties is to go, oh, well, I'll get an LLC. They're great for passive income. My attorney thinks that's the best structure to protect me. I would tell you that's a very short-sighted view of the market. Let me explain why. Most lenders around the country who are giving you single-family loans, anything that's got one to four units in it, right? We typically say in investment real estate as it relates to you know residential investment real estate, those are doors. Each unit or apartment unit that you're renting out is a door. And a one to four family can be one, two, three, or four units. Anything five units and above, that's considered commercial real estate. And that's considered a, quote, multifamily housing property. As you increase in size and complexity, like, for example, in California, you have 16 units or more, you need to have an on-site manager. And that varies from state to state in, in different ways and de- different technicalities. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's say you listen to your attorney and you decide you want to get this investment property in an LLC. Well, problem number one, kids, you can't necessarily do that because agency lenders, Freddie and Fannie, Fannie being the largest 
purchaser on the secondary market of single-family residence loans, they put together the guidelines or the rules of which they adopt certain levels of risk in the pools of loans that they buy. And one of those is they're not going to finance you in the name of an LLC. They're not going to buy that loan from the bank. And the whole purpose of Fannie Mae is to create liquidity in the markets, right? Your bank or lender makes you a loan. Your bank or lender then sells that loan back to them, gets liquidity, and reinvests that money in another loan. And they can make fees. And they can also sell the loan at a premium or a discount depending on the economy. But it's a cyclical process for the lender or for the bank so that they can remove that asset from their balance sheet, get money back in return for it, and go make more loans. That's the way the system works. Again, paraphrasing, but you know you know it now. So almost every single family lender out there that is not a portfolio lender, and I'll explain this, is going to take that loan, put it on their balance sheet, sell it off into the secondary market, and they're going to require you meet Fannie Freddie guidelines, which is going to tell you you need to have it in your individual name or you're going to fund it in your individual name and then quick clean data, deed it over to a trust because they'll allow you to do that post-close. So you're saying, well, what, Chris, my attorney said an LLC is the best structure. Yeah, it probably is. But it isn't the best structure to get financing. And that's where that lopsided view of how an attorney thinks of things is different. And some attorneys, yeah, they're going to know how financing works. And they're going to tell you, hey, this would be the best structure for you legally. But guess what? You can't get financing with that. And then some people get smart and they say, well, Chris, you could always then take that property and flip it into an LLC, change title into an LLC after you close. Wrong again. Why? Because there's two immediate reasons. Number one, changing owner, the who owns the property is a technical event of default. You will be in default and they can call that note due and payable immediately. And unless you've got all the money you borrowed in cash able to pay that off, you got a problem. And you say, well, how would the lender know? Well, guess what? If you get insurance, like you should get insurance because you need insurance for hazard, for liability, for rent or whatever you, whatever you, you know, use that property for, you need insurance for it. And the bank's going to require that by contract and they're going to check that. Whether you impound for taxes and insurance or not, they're going to get copies and evidence of your insurance because that's their underlying collateral. They get that. So when they get that and they see an LLC is the owner, they know, boom, technical event of default. Not to mention they also monitor the owners of title as well. So right then, right then and there, it kind of dispels a little bit uh, of the rumors. Now, a, a portfolio lender, uh, a smaller community bank or a super regional bank, they may portfolio those. They may not sell it on the secondary market, so they might, they might not care about what Fannie's guidelines are, and they might let you finance it in LLC. That worked great for you. That's, that's totally fine. And you know what? That structure might be best for you. But if you think that an LLC structure is going to be more safe for you as an investor, I'm sorry to say this, it's really not that much more risk avoidant. It's actually a better tax structure than most, but it's not in and of itself, better than anything else that's out there. I know a lot of people hearing this are going to be like, whoa, that's inflammatory. That can't be accurate because so many people use it. Let me explain why. If you have, for example, 10 properties, traditional agency lenders won't finance you anymore. I had this problem as I started getting into the real estate game. I would buy a property, buy another property, and here's where it gets difficult. You try to rapidly buy property, you have to support that with your free cash flow, your, your income that you can prove. And that property you buy isn't going to show up on your tax return as income that you've received until you file your next set of tax returns. So let's say you buy a property in May or June. You know, you're not going to file taxes till December. It's going to be partial year income. You know, you, I'm sorry, you're not going to file taxes till April for December. It's going to be partial year income through December because you got it in May or June. So you got half the year. Then when you file the next April, you're going to have half the year's income on that property you bought, so you're not going to get full income to show you know you can support the cash flow. But yet, when somebody underwrites you, they're going to underwrite you for that annual debt payment. 
based off your monthly cash flow. And there's a lot of rules around that. So what I'm trying to tell you is each property you buy essentially has to season for a year, year and a half on your income because you have to be able to pay for all the mortgages that are on your credit report. Sounds simple, but when you think about that in theory of growing and scaling a portfolio quickly, that generally doesn't make sense. Now, don't get at me in the DMs. There are private money lenders out there who do some really weird stuff. In this type of economic cycle where interest rates are super low and there's tons of liquidity in the system, I recognize there are a lot of options, but I can't preach to that being a stable and consistent way of planning to build a real estate portfolio for a number of reasons, not the least of which is those tend to collapse when prosperous economies turn to recessionary economies every single cycle. And the cost of those funds goes up exponentially as interest rates rise. So I can't predict for temporary economies how those lenders work. They have been historically considered unique and in some cases predatory. So what does this mean for your portfolio? Even if you borrow and you buy 10 properties over the course of several years, unless you had a tremendous amount of income coming in, there's no way to grow and scale your portfolio that fast. So anytime I see these social media gurus online talking about, oh, I own this many units, I own that many units. Look, wealth in real estate is created over time, over time. And that usually means through recessionary economies, you can buy low and values go up over time. Interest rates rise, values of properties rise, those value of property rises, they go up. You, you need that economic appreciation on a global basis that impacts more than just your individual property. Yeah, they're flippers. Yeah, they're, you know, are equity plays where people try to go in and improve the value and build equity in a property. But to really have wealth, true wealth in real estate, it takes time. Unless you've got a tremendous amount of cash flow coming in and you can support that. Or you can go into the commercial space, like I kind of foreshadowed earlier. So just to summarize, you're talking 10 units 10 doors max or 10 properties max. So if you got a couple three unit properties or four units, those count as one, as long as you're getting one single family residence loan on, you know, every time you get that three unit or four unit property, you could have 10 properties in your individual name. Then guess what? You were not financeable for agencies anymore. You're considered to be a higher risk. Then you say, okay, well, what do I do? I'll tell you exactly what I did. You go, you find a smaller lender, you get a commercial line of credit or a commercial note secured by all of the properties. That allows you to consolidate them all down into one, pay them all off, get them off your credit report. And generally speaking, commercial notes don't necessarily report to your credit report. Your company will borrow. And that's where you can change title, put all those properties under one commercial note. But there are disadvantages there. It's not going to be a 30-year amortization. It's not going to give you this massive upside in free cash flow. So that's, that's the trade-off. If you're lucky, you might get a 10-year note with 25-year amortization. So the game changes dynamically. And these little tiny nuances are not the things that people tell you about when you get into this space. They tell you, oh, you can grow perpetually. You can grow perpetually. The area where people really grow perpetually, multifamily, residential housing, commercial real estate, because your entity, your LLC, your, your corporation, your trust will borrow and you will be a guarantor. The first source of repayment for that property would be its cash flow. The second source of repayment will be the equity in the property. And the third will be your sponsorship. That's the way all commercial transactions are. That's the way that it is. There are things like non-recourse loans out there, which effectively means that unless you commit one of three bad boy carve-outs, fraud, misrepresentation, or deceit, they, the bank won't go after you personally. And in states like California where there's a one-action rule, the way it works is if a bank takes back a property, 
They just take the back of the property back from you. They go through a non-judicial foreclosure and they take it back. They give up the right to sue you for a deficiency judgment anyway. And if the bank did their job well, or the lender did their job well, that property should have enough equity in it and enough free cash flow so that they don't have a deficiency in taking the property back and they can sell that property and give you whatever's left over at the end of the day after paying off the debt that's then owed on the property. You can see this gets a lot more complex in that when you have these younger people online talking about how their legal structure works, there's only one of three options. Either they've got a terrible attorney, which I find it extremely hard to believe, especially with such a simple concept. Number two, they do not understand the business at its fundamental core, which to me is a big problem. If you're out here selling a course teaching people and you fundamentally do not understand this business as it relates to liability, I don't know how to how to digest that. To me, it screams that you're a liar. But you know, may, maybe you just don't understand it. Maybe maybe law is not your core concept. Maybe maybe that's just not your strength. I don't know. And the third, you're just you're just pure lying. That's it. You're just a liar. You're just, you're just making stuff up, reading stuff online. You don't you haven't put the dots together. You haven't got enough business experience. And it's it's difficult for me to fathom why anybody would ever go down that path anyway, because you're really talking about giving people legal advice and the concept of you sound like a subject matter ex- expert, and you, you don't. You just don't. We deal with this a lot in the banking environment where the auditors, the people who audit you, have a different expectation than the regulators do. They have different goals to accomplish, right? One of them has a completely different end result than the other does. We often argue in the banking world about one wanting us to have as many reserves as we can in cash held aside for you know a rainy day, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing some technicalities, and the other wants us to justify every penny so that we don't over-reserve and manipulate our balance sheet. So there's always this dichotomy of interest. One side wants one thing, one side wants another thing. You have to think about that in the context of owning real estate as well, because your lender wants one thing, your attorney wants one thing, your CPA wants another thing, your tenant wants one thing, and they don't always align. So you have to play this game the way that it was built to be played. You have to play according to the rules. If you want to get into the multifamily space and you want to grow your, your portfolio, I hate to tell you this, you can't put 5 or 10% down. You got to put down money. And that money is not something you get to choose. Banks back into how much money you're going to put down based on that first source repayment, the cash flow. They're going to come up with something called the debt service coverage ratio. And you can look up the calculation online. I don't want to get into it, but effectively, income minus expense and then you back your payments out of it. There you go. You've got your debt service coverage ratio. And it really means for every dollar and 25 cents, for example, for a 1.25 ratio, you have a dollar in expense, which means you've got a quarter in profit. That's how banks are looking at that. They're going to reverse engineer what the maximum loan to value they can get to you, give to you is based off of that debt service coverage ratio. The most you can get for your dollars coming in the property. And they're going to tell you how much you have to put down. In high dollar markets like California, like Texas, you know, it's hard to get above 70%. In California, it's rare to see something above 60% these days just because cap rates are so low. And if some of this is technical vernacular you don't know, I suggest you look it up. You should know it. Cap rate, a capitalization rate is a wonderful tool. It's a great way to compare, cross-compare investments. I'm not a personal huge fan. I, I, I look at gross income multiplier and some other things because I'm old school like that. But again, that, that's a universally understood metric. So what I will say to you is the, the commercial real estate place is the way to, grow, way, way to grow. But if you've already kind of done the math in your head, you said, well, wait a minute, Chris, I have to put more money into this. I've got to find a property that cash flows. I've got to be able to buy it. In areas like California where land's expensive, we can't get above you know, 55, 60% in some cases. I got to put 40% down. 
And some in, in most of these properties are millions of dollars. Yeah, you do. So then that begs the question, all these people you see online, how are they coming up with all this cash flow to buy single family residence properties or this massive slug of cash to put down to buy these commercial properties? And now the light bulb should be coming on for you. The light bulb should be coming on for everybody. The real estate game is not some sensational new cloak and dagger black box that you don't know what goes on. And it's just, oh, my God, this guy can teach me the unlimited secrets. It doesn't work that way. And I'm not trying to discourage anybody. It's a beautiful way to build wealth over time. Over time. You have to understand people like this on social media that look super young, who tell you that they have all these things. Unless you know a true source of wealth and source of funds. And that's not an inappropriate question to ask. Banks ask that all the time just so that we can meet our compliance burden. If somebody can't show you how they've made a tremendous amount of money every single month in order to qualify for all these properties and built this portfolio, and they built it seemingly in, let's call it four or five years, that's going to be difficult for me to swallow. And at the same time, if somebody can't show you where they got a lump sum of, of money to put down on a tremendous amount of property, I can't justify how they say they have all, these, all this commercial real estate. There are some influences out there that totally make sense that have been in the game a long time and say the right thing. I'll throw a name out, Thatch Nguyen. That dude's an OG from Seattle. He's in a market that isn't as real estate expensive, at least it wasn't when he got started. His story's true. He's an older dude. He may flex a little bit of cars from here and there, but you know what? I respect that. But he sells a story that's believable. And I don't really know him that well, but I know people that know him. And I can tell you that that story seems like it fits, seems right. He's of the right age, demographic. He's seen enough recessionary economies, and he, he does the right things. The signs are out there. When people like this are out there talking, I have a tendency to, to comment. And I try to do it in the most respectful way possible. And if you know me and my expert field rages, I tend to go off. I do. But I don't do that online. And I certainly don't do that in the comment section. I keep it classy. I keep, keep it above board. I try to be educational. And I give people the opportunity to say, you know what, to err is human. But some of these influencers just want to say stupid shit like that just to get you and anybody else to comment. And that's where I fall victim to this sometimes. I have no doubt this particular individual who started this entire conversation really just wanted to say enough that was sensational and enough that was wrong to encourage comments by a lot of people. And this dude's got almost a million followers, a million followers on TikTok. I wonder sometimes how many of these things are real and how many of them are not. But I'm going to keep commenting because I'm going to do that. And I'm going to bring that fight to everybody's doorstep in a respectful and classy way just because this stuff cannot discourage the next generation of people. Because if you think that all this is possible overnight, you're going to be discouraged when you realize it's not. And then you might stop. But real estate can be, mean a lot to a lot of people and it can build a lot of wealth. It's certainly done a lot for me. Leave you with some last few pointers as it relates to real estate. I do not believe that you need a single asset, single purpose LLC for every property that you own. Some lenders will require, depending on the size and type of transaction, what does that mean? If you have one large commercial property and you have it in one LLC, the single asset in that LLC is that property. And the single purpose of that LLC is to manage that one property. There's no other business being conducted by the LLC. That's what they mean by single asset, single purpose. However, a lot of people will have an LLC that has several assets, all of their real estate, for example. Some attorneys will tell you to have an LLC per property if you're in commercial real estate. That can be costly. You have to file tax returns for each, each one of them. You also have to you know, prepare your corporate documents for corporate governance every single year. 
And it can be complex because you add another entity to have to keep up with from a compliance perspective every single year. And I get why that is a burden for a property owner, largely like myself. So unless you have to go single asset, single purpose, or it's a large commercial building, like a you know 100 unit multifamily property, for example, you want to have a single asset, single purpose building for that. And you certainly don't want to be involved in the mortgage business in that same LLC and then have a mortgage client sue that LLC, which also owns real estate and, and make that susceptible to you know, some of the other business. And a lender wouldn't want that either. So there's reasons for that. However, if you can, and you can move all your stuff into one LLC, you understand that you know every property in that LLC, if there's a slip and fall incident, there's an you know, unfortunate set of circumstances where somebody might pass away due to something that happened at a property and you're found to be liable, every property in that LLC could be used to pay the debt that the court you know hands down to you in the form of a judgment. So there's a lot of complexity to it, a lot of things to think about. I know tons of investors that have their entire investment portfolio in a trust, all aggregated together under one trust or in several separate trusts. There's a little bit less of a compliance burden as it relates to trusts. And frankly, you get the same level of legal protection so long as you operate it within the structure that it is designed to be operated in, particularly if it's an irrevocable trust. So there's a lot to consider when it comes down to entity structure. I have seen it every single which way. There are certainly some forms that are, are that are safer, but what I will tell you is, if you're relying on somebody not piercing the corporate veil for bad actions, you're you're probably in the wrong mindset. If you're relying on somebody suing the wrong LLC in small claims court to you know to get away from a technicality, you're the wrong mindset. If you're going to get into this real estate game, you need to operate property morally and ethically right. Keep that property like clean as you can within the confines of your budget and the sets of circumstances that you've been delivered, your job is not to be a slumlord. Your job is to be a good person and provide a place for families to grow up. And I hate seeing that stuff. And this guy reminded me a lot of that too. You know, just because you own something like a Section 8 housing doesn't mean you have to treat it like the lowest possible rung of housing that's out there. It's not. People live there. And that kind of stuff really, really bothers me, especially when people are trying to get away from legal nuance on technicalities. I hope this was helpful. I hope it clears up a little bit of, of kind of how the market works and some of the legal structures that we see along the way. Remember, this is for entertainment purposes only. This is not legal advice or investment advice. I'm just telling you that you need to think about these things as an investor. And I'm saying the one thing you should take home from this is don't be discouraged if it takes you a long time to buy your first piece of real estate. More often than not, the people that I talk to get into real estate investment by buying a home they're living in, building up an investment, you know, a nice little investment in cash or in something else, they liquidate that investment. And instead of selling their home, they use that investment to buy their next home and rent out the first home that they were in. And it kind of springboards from there over time. But it takes a lot of time to make enough cash flow coming in to where you can buy properties quickly or you get that lump sum of money to buy a big commercial property. There really is no other way. Flippers flip property and they get big paychecks. That's their lump sum of money. People who go in and buy a property cheap and do a bunch of work on it. Yeah, you can do some equity plays there. That Burr method, I'm a big fan of that. That actually works. Thatch Nguyen also talks about that a lot uh, on his social media channel. And that's also one of the reasons why I can see where this guy came from and that he understands it. Now, I will say long-term wealth does come from real estate ownership over time. If you want wealth, don't buy into the hype, get into the game, play the game with a long-term long mindset, and you'll be just fine. If you have any questions, hit me up in the DMs, like, follow, subscribe, leave me in air quotes here, 
honest five-star review. It means a tremendous amount to the podcast. You will also hear that on the outro. But generally, hey, if you got feedback, leave it in the comments. Send me a DM. I want to hear how you can get the most value. And that includes hitting me with topics. If there's things you want to know about that you want on these free game 20-minute solos, we'll give it to you. I want to do that. So let me know. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you were listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, so be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap, and as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.